When you look back on it, it's not the process of trying to blame somebody that sets this thing in motion. It's the process of understanding where the issue occurred, how you fix the issue, and how you prevent the issue from ever occurring again. Karina, I'm pumped for this next conversation. I'm sorry again that you weren't there to talk with Dave Stone. He's the senior transportation manager at Ryder, covering all their logistics and transport. Obviously a hot topic right now with supply chain. Everyone's buying everything under the sun from a consumer standpoint. So as a fellow consumer with Hanukkah not too far around the corner, gotta get ready for the holidays, making sure all of our packages make it to their recipients on time. It was a doozy. I bet. I was really bummed to miss this one as well, Danny. Uh, so give me a quick recap. What did you take away from Dave? All right. So of the many lessons that Dave shared with us, he, during his tenure at Amazon, got one of those infamous late night. No, it was not a sup you up text. It was the infamous question mark. That's all that was included from Bezos trying to figure out what possibly went wrong. Have you heard about these emails before? I have. <laughs> Cannot imagine. Yeah, right? Like the hair on the back of my neck is standing up right now, even just thinking on Dave's behalf. And this is years ago. So the hang time, as I think it's called, or the staying power of the Bezos fear-inducing email, it is palpable. But what I asked Dave, and what I'm so excited for our listeners to hear is, Amazon, who's achieved colossal success, can you do that without having to resort to tactics like the question mark email that probably takes years off of Dave's life. Any thoughts? Yeah. And I did get a chance to get a peek into the episode and I, I really loved those examples. There was another one that was similar that was all around the concept of like one package not arriving on time or missing. And it was um, a child's like Barbie doll house. So that instantly had my little child ears perk up. Uh, but it made me think about how we're always talking about like fail fast in this environment with high growth companies, but we don't often like stop and ask ourselves, wait, why did that fail? So him talking about the importance of process and like really trying to unpack rather than like pointing fingers, was it Tom and accounting or the way this was set up? Like it's really diving into what made this process break down, why, so that they can really move forward. And I think that's how you can successfully fail fast, if you will. Totally. He absolutely echoes your assessment of the situation, which is we are all beholden to the company mission, which is if we're trying to get this dollhouse to Susie by her birthday, everyone plays an integral, indispensable part to making sure that Barbie dollhouse makes it intact and on time and lives up to their promise to consumers. So I think when you think about it that way, then it totally spins the Bezos email. But you got to listen to the episode to feel the absolute anxiety provoking reaction that getting that kind of email elicits. With that said, listeners, let's dive right in. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me tremendous pleasure to invite Dave Stone to reveal. Dave, how are you? Hey, Danny. Thanks for having me, man. Excited to be on here. Excited to kick this conversation off. Well, I think that one of the things I'm really excited about, because our listeners come from a host of different backgrounds, is first and foremost, diving in with the amount of time that you've spent across numerous different organizations. You've seen a lot. So tell us a little bit about your journey to get from Amazon to Ryder. And then in particular, what is the balancing act that in your role that you have to really finesse, given 
the various personalities that may not look as familiar as your former colleagues in Amazon? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it even starts before Amazon, right? I mean, I'm a different breed. I'm an engineer by nature. So by definition, people say an engineer that's been at Amazon, that runs inside sales organizations, like what are we doing, man? Like what's going on? And I think that's where a lot of this conversation starts. I know I got told when I was an engineer coming up through school that, hey, you should think about sales. If you make it into sales and you're an engineer, you can explain anything because you understand the details. You understand everything going into it. And I think that's the kind of piece that sits behind all of this is understanding everything below the surface and being able to explain that to a customer, being able to talk with a truck driver, being able to talk with an executive. Um, all of those different pieces kind of lead into, do you understand the details behind things? So I think when you look at a company like Amazon, Amazon really wanted to be the company that you went to for everything, um, no matter what it was. And I think all of us today pick up our, you know, get up in the morning. We, we ask Alexa what time it is. We ask Alexa to order us more milk. We ask Alexa to order us more dog food. Um, and we kind of go about our day. A lot of it is spent based on what is showing up tonight from Amazon and, uh, and what packages are going to be at my doorstep. Um, and so you think about that piece of it. And that's really the piece that I've taken over the years is if you have this company that solves your customers' needs in any capacity, no matter where they're at, that's going to be a company that people are going to want to be a part of. And so if you think about Ryder and what I'm doing at Ryder, Ryder really serves to be this supply chain company that can solve any of your needs. And whether that is what I'm doing now, which is freight brokerage stuff, and I'm sure we'll get into what that means, or whether that is a final mile and delivering to a house, or whether that's e-commerce. It has all these different components that allow a customer to really have a, a one-stop shop. And I think that's the message behind all of it, is if you have this one-stop shop that a customer can go to for anything that they need inside of that area, well, then you're going to win. And I think that's what you saw at Amazon. That's what you continue to see at Amazon. And I think you know that's why, truly, I partner with a company like Ryder, where we can win inside of that space. I'll share a little bit about my own experience, having come from a much larger tech organization when I joined my current employer, gone much smaller and I won't say immature, just earlier in its journey. And I got some great advice from my boss who said, come in with soft elbows. And for whatever reason that stuck with me because you have so much wisdom. I mean, an embarrassment of riches, Dave, in everything that you've achieved to lend to riders next phase in their evolution. And I'm wondering, just again, given the stigma from the outside looking in, Amazon versus trucking and freight, you have very different thresholds and appetites for change and disruption. How did you come in with soft elbows, but still impart upon that cultural that may be slow to adopt and adapt? How did you walk that razor's edge? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really good piece because that's ultimately the question that I had asked myself as I was being recruited into Ryder is why Ryder? What, what is Ryder, right? And I think the piece that I always go back to is if you would have asked me, I don't know, 10 years ago, what is Ryder? I would have said, oh, they're a rental company. You go there to, to rent a truck. You're going to move down the street, go rent from Ryder. They'll have a, they'll have a truck for you and you'll rent, right? And it almost feels kind of dirty and grungy. And then if you ask me, kind of now, like what is Ryder? Ryder really is a company that is in part of the supply chain um, and has a rental division. It has a brokerage division. And it's almost become this extension of the supply chain for a lot of different companies. And truthfully, when you look around everything inside of you know my office or your office or wherever, a lot of that stuff got delivered by Ryder. And so they're almost this, this kind of underlying company that we don't really think about. 
And then I think you look at where Rider is going, right? And you look at some of the mergers and acquisitions that have uh, become public, um, and you see this tech piece that Rider is buying and this tech piece that Rider is going into. And so it'll kind of lead you to believe that, well, if you ask me in, in five years, what is Rider going to be? It's, it's probably this entity of a technology-based company that's got all this cool supply chain solutions that can solve anything that a customer needs. And I think that's what's so fun about it right now and not the the quote-unquote legacy, old, archaic, 90-year-old company. We're more of this startup within a large-scale company that allows folks to really have have a peace of mind that the company's going to stick around and it's going to be around for years to come because it's got that proven history behind Agnostic it. just of Ryder, but thinking about you've occupied operational roles at various organizations. If you were to distill independently agnostically of your current tenure at Ryder, what are those tipping point advantages that in operations you've been able to time and time again, go back to I have to think that you've got your usual suspects of tricks in your playbook that we'd love for you to socialize and share with ops leaders out there that are listening. And in particular at Ryder, have there been any novel incremental gains that you've been able to achieve operationally, whether it's through the adoption of new tech, maybe it's who you're looking for in terms of talent. Tell us a little bit more about your secret sauce. From the standpoint of operations, really we're... Nothing has changed from the standpoint of what we want as a consumer, and nothing has changed from what we kind of go after on a daily basis. At the heart of it, I want to know where my stuff is. I want to know that it is either on the shelf when I show up, right, or whether it's being delivered to my house. That's why we all track our Amazon packages all day long is, is it showing up at my house? That's why I can see things that say they're 10 stops away from me. Uh, for my package being delivered, because we want to know that. And if you think about that, and you kind of break that out, like what is it that we're all looking for in any role or any area or any operation, it's always boiling back to peace of mind, right? And if I'm an operational leader, and I'm sitting inside of a warehouse, and I'm running a large scale warehouse, what do I want to do? I want to be able to go to sleep at night, not be called in the middle of the night, because there's a problem, know that my team on the floor is handling it, know that I have ultimate trust in that. And when I wake up in the morning, and I check in on the news of the night, I'm going to be able to, to, to know what that news is and have that peace of mind that my team did the, the right thing every single time, right? As consumers, we want the same thing. We want peace of mind. I want to know that when I go to the store, if I need paper towels or I need Cheetos or whatever I need, that item is going to be there. Or if I order something from Amazon, it's going to show up on time because, you know, God forbid that my 10th package that arrived today showed up a minute late. I just want that peace of mind. And so everything that we do from an operational standpoint is to set up for that peace of mind. Now, how do I do that? Well, I make my team super efficient. And so when we start thinking about efficiency, the things that I want to do or the technology I want to add is all based on the value add to my team. Is my team going to benefit from whatever technology I add? Or is it just a cool new toy that Dave Stone wants to come up with? If it's just a cool new toy, I don't need it. But if it makes them more efficient, so then they can go off and do the other things that I actually need them to do, well, then that's a technology that I'm going to roll out. But it always boils back to peace of mind. They need to know that what they're doing is providing something. Um, they need to know that what they're doing is going to benefit in somebody's success, whether that is the item on the shelf or whether that's the item showing up to somebody's house. Uh, but it keeps on boiling back to peace of mind uh, with that, uh, that consumer at the end of it. But the other side of it is technology is only as good as the person on the other side of it. So if there's not an ease of operation behind that technology, it's worthless. It's useless. I can come up with 
the best computer program in the world. But if it's super complex and super hard, and I hate to, to throw out my finance friends, right? But when we write Excel presentations that, uh, that have a thousand tabs and you have to click on 13 tabs to get this item to, to produce the number that you want for whatever plan you're building out, that becomes a little bit hard to do and hard to achieve. But if you create something that's a simple mechanism that anybody can use, well, then that's going to be technology that's going to be adopted faster. It's going to be technology that the floor is going to use faster. And it doesn't matter who I build behind that technology, they're going to want to use it. So it always goes back to that. And then the last piece that I'll throw out there from a team perspective, um, and this is an area I hope we get into, but for me, it, it is all about the people. And I know a lot of people say that, and I know, you know, we'll probably get into the word culture and things like that, but it really starts there. And if you develop the right culture from day one, then the rest of this stuff kind of filters itself out. They're going to tell you if the technology sucks. They're going to tell you that it's not good or it's not useful. They're going to tell you if it doesn't add value. They're going to tell you if, you know, that technology you thought was great actually isn't. They're going to give you the real piece of feedback on that. And I think that's why I always go back to if we're hiring the right people, we're allowing our culture to be put to them from day one. We're training them on the right way to do things. Then the rest of the stuff works itself out and you're able to provide that peace of mind to the consumer in whatever capacity that is. I'm gravitating to this notion of peace of mind and forgive me because I think coming into today's discussion, I oversimplified who's involved in what to me feels more of a Venn diagram of peace of mind. There's your peace of mind internally. Like when Dave goes to bed at night, shit is not going sideways. Then there's the peace of mind of your customer. Are they getting the delightful experience that you're beholden to provide given how highly competitive and globalized all businesses become. And then there's the third leg of the stool. Are your people empowered with the right tools for them to know I'm starting my day and finishing my day with all the right tools. Thanks to Dave. So that gives them peace of mind. And I think about how to juggle all of those competing priorities and agendas. And I have to say from the outside looking in ops roles are the unsung heroes. Typically yeah. that you're the first to hear an earful when stuff is broken. What I would love to hear is what is a time in your ops career, if you're willing to share and divulge, where shit really did go sideways? Like really from an operations role, when did the nightmare materialize come to fruition for one reason or another? You lost your peace of mind, the consumer, your employees. Tell us a little bit about that. And then let's flip the script afterwards. Tell us something that's a crowning achievement and what you've done more recently. We're like, nailed it. I'd love to go back to Amazon because the old adage from Amazon, and this is this has taken back a while, but you used to be able to, as a consumer, send an email to Bezos himself. And you'd say, Jeff, my package was late. I demand an answer. What's going on? And that used to be the quintessential, uh, oh shit, like what is happening um, inside of uh, Amazon? And you would get the email from Jeff that would just have question marks on it. And you'd say, oh, I got to... I gotta go fix this. And uh, I remember one situation one time where I got the email and it was just question marks. Um, and so you got to go dive in and you got to go understand what happened, right? And uh, you have to root cause it. Uh, and it takes a long time to root cause that. Well, in Amazon, speed is everything. You don't have time to root cause everything that went wrong, right? Uh, did the picker that picked the item, put it in the right tote? Did the right tote make it to the right area for the packer to put it in? And as you kind of move through this entire process, you're essentially doing a five whys analysis 
in a matter of really a couple hours to try to identify what happened. And a certain situation where a little girl's dollhouse actually was not shipped correctly. It actually went to a different individual. And so you have to go through that entire process to understand. One of the things that I always look back on is, you know, it always feels like when you're going through um, a process like that, you know, you, you think that, well, senior leadership must want a person to blame. Senior leadership must want a person to fire because obviously this is a mistake and this little girl is very upset and her parents are very upset and we have to solve this. Um, and so it must be one person and let's go after one person. But when you look back on it, it's not the process of trying to blame somebody that sets this thing in motion. It's the process of understanding where the issue occurred, how you fix the issue and how you prevent the issue from ever occurring again. And I think Amazon is one of those companies that does that to a T, right? And so, yeah, we, we kind of joke here, you know, one package out of 10, like really, is that a big deal? But to Amazon and, and to, the, to the folks that, that, you know, have really built up this culture inside of Amazon, yeah, one package is because one package could determine that you actually have a major issue inside of your process somewhere and you need to fix that. Maybe it was all the way upstream. Maybe it was the supplier that actually provided the dollhouse to uh, the warehouse that caused the issue. And so as you go through this and you're very quickly kind of driving through this, the human nature is, oh, it must be, must be Johnny. He's the one that picked it wrong. He's the one that messed this whole thing up. Well, okay, let's, let's look at a step deeper. And as you start to go through that, you actually figure out how the package was labeled as it came into the warehouse was actually the issue. And so if we would have turned around and blamed Johnny, well, Johnny wouldn't be with us anymore. And Johnny would have been fired. And now we just in, uh, ensure that his life is changed all because of something that occurred outside of his control. And so as I always think through any issue that comes up operationally, and whether it's a customer that's upset about something, and whether it's a simple thing to us, like, wow, this is a very small instance of this occurring, um, the, the conversation that always occurs inside my head is, wait a sec, what can we do to go back and figure out exactly where the issue occurred? How do we Pokey oak the process, right? Ensure that the process never has this issue again. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes that's the hard part. Uh, but if you continue down that route of understanding that it's not necessarily a person that messed this up, but it's the process behind it, you install processes that allow you to catch it sooner and allow you to actually find the mistake faster so that you don't have the little girl that opens her package and finds out it's not a doll. Can you be as else. successful culturally as Amazon? and financially as Amazon without having to have your CEO be beholden to responding to customer emails and by extension, feel compelled that he has to send wildly, I'll use this word deliberately, toxic emails with question marks. Can you achieve yeah. both? Are those mutually exclusive? That's a really good question. And what's interesting about the piece you mentioned on the New York Times uh, expose, uh, Seattle Times also did one, right? Um, I actually used to teach in the Amazon Leadership Institute. And this is all new folks coming in, fresh out of school. And that had just come out. And I remember standing up in front of the class just as a kind of meet and greet. And I got hit with that question, like, what do you think about this? Yeah. And so as I kind of thought through my my answers, I think my answers then will probably be similar to the way that I'm going to respond right now, right? Is the component on customer obsession is the guiding leadership principle. We should all be obsessed with the customer piece on that, right? I mean, that's there's other pieces that came out of that that are fantastic, right? I mean, the old adage of the desks at Amazon are all old doors in order to save Cost because the customer doesn't care what kind of desk you have. They care when their package gets delivered, right? And you know, you, you get those ingrained into you. But I think to answer your question, 
to me, it goes back to what type of culture are you driving? And is that cultural expectation set on day one, right? So to get back to the Amazon Bezos question mark, is that email positive? No, but what does it do? It instills a certain response that Amazon wanted to instill inside of its employees during that time. And I think that's the piece. And so when I think through what are some of the good things that Amazon did? It's not that Jeff Bezos sent emails with question marks that scared all of us and made us jump through a thousand hoops. It's a matter of what is he trying to drive? He's trying to drive the fact that customer obsession is real. It is something that the company is built upon. And it's something that you should incorporate into your daily life on every single thing that you do. And so the pieces that I've taken from that obviously are, there's still a customer obsession, granted in a different mindset now, but some of the other ones like ownership, ownership is something that Amazon preached through and through. And that means that everything is my problem and everything is my issue. And I'm going to go solve it because at the end of the day, that's the piece that got instilled in you from day one. So I think, you know, the toxic emails are not good and they are not something that should be replicated in any sense, but should the leadership principles be known and understood and should any person on the floor that you walk up to in any capacity, whether they're in operations, whether they're in leadership, whether they're in an inside sales, or it doesn't matter if you say, hey, what are, what are we about? What is our mission? What are we doing? Um, they should be able to rattle it off because you've built into them that piece. That's the lesson that I take from those emails. Um, I definitely don't send those emails, um, but I also ensure that my team understands kind of my leadership style and what I'm after and the mission that we're going after in a very different sense. And so I think that's ultimately what I take from the Bezos days. And the last piece that I'll kind of throw out there, right, is Amazon, you learn a lot in a short period of time, right? I mean, my time at Amazon is 20 years at any other company. You learn to move fast, you learn to break things, you learn certain elements of what is successful, but it's as, it's as much as you put in is what you're going to get out of that. Um, and as long as you constantly are looking at the lesson to be learned in the background, you'll be super successful at a company like Amazon, right? So do those emails scare me? If Jeff sent me an email today with a question mark after this podcast, would I turn around and still get scared? Yeah, there'd, there'd probably be me over in the corner, you know, shivering. Um, absolutely. But I think that the, the lesson that is there that the one is that I take away is that every package does in fact matter when you have a leadership principle like customer obsession. So, and now we have a new up and coming generation in the workforce, as you're thinking about building out your ops teams and broadly across your organization, the tolerance for that level of top-down, arguably condescension, I mean, from whether it's an HR standpoint or even just a retention standpoint, you yeah. can't get away with a stunt like that anymore. So any customer obsession and harmonizing it alongside what is becoming part of our parlance and vernacular, psychological safety. So maybe yeah. tell us a little bit about how you've successfully created that balance as sort of, I don't know, your, your dismount, ah, I have, I have taken the lessons from the past and here I am proudly at Ryder saying, I've, I've achieved both. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I think uh, the other side of that conversation, right, and right, wrong, and different, I think that anybody you talk to at Amazon will, will agree with this, right, is that we struggled in those days to celebrate the things that actually were correct. I mean, we were very much a organization that went after the process and we fixed the process, but we didn't on the other side say, hey, you guys did this process perfectly a thousand times and we really appreciate it. And that was always the tough conversation to have. And so I think 
one of the things that you see, especially in today's work environment, is this idea that every win should be celebrated and every right move should be celebrated. And so I do things like a celebration call on Fridays where we gather the entire team and it's a peer-directed celebration of everything that the team is doing well. Uh, We give out awards on Fridays and we really want to drive home the point that, hey, good things, no matter how big, how small, are things that we want to recognize because we recognize that that's a piece that allows people to feel a part of something. We're doing something, right? And I think for years and years at Amazon, we always would look back at the end of a year and go, wow, we did what? Like, oh my gosh, like that's that's amazing. But we never took time during the process to recognize what we were doing. I mean, there was a time where we were loading packages in the middle of the night on airplanes and no one knew about it, right? And you didn't celebrate that until after you see the first Amazon airplane go up in the air and you go, hey, I, I remember that. I remember when that process started, right? And I think that's the difference that you see today. And so it's not so much that there is a lack of accountability or a lack of setting the right expectations. I think it's a matter of making sure that you are setting the right tone with folks in terms of what good looks like and what winning looks like. And I always think back to this, right? I I tell people all the time, like I didn't become the leader I am until I had kids. Once I had kids, everything changed because you figure this out very quickly with your kids, right? If all you do is yell at them and all you do is say how they did everything wrong, they have no desire to do right. They just turn around and go, okay, just tell me what you want me to do because there's a there's obviously a piece where I'm not doing it correctly um, versus the other side of it, which is if I tell my kids, hey, that's good. I, I really like the way you just did that. Like that was perfect. That's what I want. Those are things that I think really resonate with this generation. And I always kind of laugh when I say this because if you go back and read some of like John Wooden's books, right? He would always do this exact same piece. Hey, that was good, but... Here's how we do it at UCLA. This is the way that we're doing the UCLA way. And I always think through that, that I call it the rider way, right? Like, hey, that was good the way you did that, but here's a little bit better way that we want you to do it here. And we actually think this is going to help you. And from an inside sales position, right, I I can chalk it up to, hey, you're going to make more money. You're going to, you know, get more customers. You're going to get more leads, whatever the case may be. But it always resorts back to that piece in terms of like, not beating them down, but building them up on what right looks like and then celebrate the hell out of it. The moment they win, celebrate it. If all it is is I can't get through from a gatekeeper to a customer, well, the moment they do, celebrate it. Call out everybody, clap, cheer, whatever it takes. It doesn't just mean when you get a new customer and like that's the culmination of it. It's you did all of the inputs correctly, the rest of it will come. The outputs will come. Hey all, Karina here. There is a direct correlation between brand purpose and profitability. Seriously. And according to Forbes, that correlation is super positive and long lasting. Brands with a high sense of purpose saw an increase in value by 175% over a 12 year span, proving Dave's point that purpose, when done with a heaping dose of psychological safety, pays off in the long run. Dave, last question and then I'll let you go. If you could describe sales, in one word, what word would you use to describe sales? Disaster. And the, the reason <laughs> I say this, right, is because everything you are doing like goes against the kind of, you know, the, the peace in terms of calm and serene. Um, and, you know, everybody you're calling, you get told from day one, hey, numbers matter, right? Call, 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 especially in an inside sales role, call, call, call. And you have 10 other people that are calling doing the exact same thing, right? And you're hoping for something. You're hoping for 
you know, somebody to pick up, somebody to answer, somebody to allow you to give your pitch. And the moment you start giving your pitch, the person hangs up on you. You're like, man, geez, I want to throw this phone through the wall right now. And so everything about it is just this disaster. And then all of a sudden you get that one person, that one phone call that just changes the entire course of it. And it's like the disaster relief team that you hear about on TV that says, hey, we'll come in and fix all of your flood damage and all your water damage just comes in and cleans it all up because you forget about all of that and you celebrate that piece and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm the greatest salesman ever. And this, this is the most fun I've ever had. And that's the piece where it just changes people's perception. So when you look at a disaster and you go, man, there's so much stuff that just went into causing that disaster. Yeah, all those phone calls, all those emails, all those interactions, all those you know late nights of trying to figure out who to call, what to call, all of those things, it gets wrapped up into one big disaster of a moment and then it just gets cleaned up by the restoration team when they come in and you actually get that phone call and you close that sale. So that's what sales is to me is just this, I'm trying to get through the disaster on a daily basis and when I do, oh, it's a ton of fun, man. Didn't know how you're going to pull out of that tailspin when you use disaster. Got to think it's a first in the history of Reveal, but I love that angle. So Dave, what a treat to hear every little tidbit of that war story of the dollhouse. Thanks so much for sharing all of your operational insight with our listeners out there. And we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Dave. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performing sales teams, head over to gong.io. If you like what you heard, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.